Ian Trottier here for a discussion to truth. We are at CPAC, and I have a wonderful woman with me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lala Suarez Mooney, and I'll, I'll allow her to introduce herself to you, but uh, uh, Lala was a, a, in prison in Cuba at the age of 19. So, uh, Lala, please uh, introduce yourself for viewers. Right. My name is Lala Suarez Mooney. Lala, like you're saying, Lala La. And um, I was put in prison when I was 19. The militiamen surrounded my house, came in, and said, um, everybody goes to prison. Is it Havana? In Havana. In Havana. And um, we went, they put me in the women's prison of Guanabacoa. And I was in prison only like two months, but I have an uncle who died in prison. My dad was put in, in a prison in La Cabaña, the entrance, Havana. And I have another uncle who served seven years of a prison. And then his son went to Miami, rented a boat, went to Cuba, and rescued him. And, and, and uh, you know, ransomed him. So this is what year, though? Well, this is it. I'm 82 years old now. You're 82. You look great for 82. <laughs> I work at it. <laughs> Good. It shows. Yeah, this was in 1961. Then the missile crisis happened after that. 1962. Everybody remembers the missile crisis. Yeah, of course. And the and then so we're looking at the and, and then the, the this is. And then when did you make your way to uh, La Florida? Right. I was lucky. Um, they have put 100,000 people in prison. So uh, Fidel Castro. Yeah, Fidel Castro. Just to scare us. You know, anybody... They charge you with a crime or they just no, they put no, you in there? They didn't even know who I was. When, they, when, they, when the police interviewed me, uh, they didn't know anything about me. So it was just a list they had prepared. Uh, put you in handcuffs? Uh, yeah, and my and my father too, and uh, my two sisters, and um, they just they just knew enough that they knew you didn't support what exactly, they were doing. Exactly, they um, it's a strategy. You were pro Bautista, right? Uh, Was it well, Bautista yeah, before? Well, uh, not necessarily pro Bautista. Okay. Right, right. Um, my dad was a dean. There was a Villanova University in Cuba, and my dad was a dean of engineering. Associated the Villanova yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So he he was well known, and we were deep Catholics, and we were against communism. So um, Fidel came and took over, and uh, and uh, so it is a strategy. I really want to emphasize. That is a strategy to scare people. Not necessarily that my dad had done nothing against the government, but um, they uh, they put people in prison. They didn't have where to put the prisoners, so there's a fortress at the entrance of La Cabaña for 3,000 soldiers, and they put 6,000 prisoners there. And my dad was there, and he could hear the executions. Oh wow! And he would prepare people, write letters to their family, saying goodbye, you know, and pray. Execution by gun. By gun. And the idea. Fire squad. Yep. They they said that 
Che Guevara enjoyed it so much that he had a special window and he wrote a letter to his father saying how much he enjoys watching the executions and seeing the blood. And Che Guevara wasn't even Cuban, he was from was it Argentina? Yeah, congratulations for knowing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he was Fidel Castro's strongest man, you know. And he organized all that. <laughs> Che Guevara came from a wealthy family, or is, is that is that right? So he, did he bring money to Castro to build that regime, or what was the connection? Well, it's it's complicated. Um, a lot of the writers said he said he was a physician. Some other writers said he was not, that he made it up. Uh, intellectually, he was really a communist. So intellectually, he gave Fidel. Uh, ideas and, and really was the one that grabbed the government and, and made it. Who, who did who is who is Che Guevara influenced? Because Argentina wasn't isn't a communist. And that, no, no, intellectual. Yeah. Marx, intellectual, right? Okay. Engels and Marx. Interesting. I wonder if he, uh, che, was Che a CIA? No, 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 no. He was from Argentina. Yeah. But he had traveled through the world, and he had. He was really a convinced communist. Interesting. Okay, so Lala, um, in La Florida, uh, upon moving to uh, Florida, your family prospered. This is what happened. We're an exception. We didn't go to Florida, we came to Washington, D.C. Because right. my dad was an engineer, and um, he had a friend that got him a little job at Catholic University, working in, in uh, some kind of scientific thing in the basement of one place. And he worked uh, there, and then he moved up and up, and then he, be he came a nuclear engineer. In Maryland? Yeah, in the United States. And then he worked for the biggest nuclear engineering company called Bechtel. Of course, Bechtel. They, they, yeah, of course. I'm very familiar with Bechtel. Originally, I'm from San Francisco, and Bechtel is prominent in San Francisco. Right. Well, he moved up. I'm very proud of my dad. He was like a genius. And he had like five college degrees and everything. Um, and he self-taught, became a nuclear engineer. And uh, uh, so we, we were one of the few Cubans that came directly to Washington. We didn't have the Miami area. But then, when my brother graduated from Harvard and MIT, and he decided, oh wow, yeah, he decided he was going to run uh, for uh, mayor. He looked at the map and he said, "I'm going to Miami." So he moved to Miami. Good food. Yeah. <laughs> Few ones, yeah, that he won. Pico the guy, uh, Pico, no, uh, right? Una de mis, mis cenas, 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 comidas favoritas, preferidos. Perfecto, picadillo, black beans, and tamales. Uh, and, uh, the olive, they have an olivo. Pork, yeah, oh, oh, it's so good. Onion. It's beautiful, beautiful. Las Olas in uh, Miami Beach. Las Olas is a place that I love to get. Uh, Las Olas is on uh, close to Meridian and uh, like 5th or 6th. Uh, yeah, Las Olas. I love to go to Las Olas and get that there. Perfect, perfect. I think uh, I think food is, is part of our culture, you know. 
So um, I still eat black beans every night if I can. <laughs> okay, so you're back to your brother. So your brother says, okay, I'm going to go to Miami. I'm going to run for mayor. Right. I've got a degree from Harvard and uh, MIT. Right. He decided that, that he was going to go to Miami. So uh, he ran and won. And then um, he stayed there, you know. And then some of my other brothers also moved down there. And ultimately, my parents retired and all my uncles and aunts went back and moved to Miami. And your brother's name that was mayor? Savior. Savior. Yeah. Okay. And today, you also have another family member. So you have a great lineage. Another yeah, family right. member is the mayor, yeah. current mayor. Well, he, him, Savior, his son, is the mayor of Miami now, Francis. And he ran for, for president. I don't know if you saw him. Right. That's correct. <laughs> okay. He did for, uh, right. for a little while. Uh, a little bit too early, so. Um, but I think uh, that uh, he's got a future. Yes. Yeah. He's got good conservative values. Exactly. He was opposed to the lockdowns. There you go. Now you've got a book written, you've written here. Oh, excuse me, but I'm also missing someone else, and that would be your son. There you go. <laughs> My baby. My baby. Uh -huh. Okay, so tell us about your son. Well, it's fantastic. My son, at age 26, quit his job in Maryland and decided to run for Senate. And at age 27, he got elected senator in Maryland. State senator. State senator, and he was there for 12 years. And um, he was 27. Everybody in the Senate was like an average of 65. But they depended on him. They were, Alex, Alex, uh, how do I vote? You know, when you put a, an amendment and, and the bill changes. Alex, Alex, what do I do? What do I do? And he was telling them all what to do. And uh, he was there 12 years. Then he got redistricted. So let me tell you what happened. You're not going to believe it. You know what he did? He moved to West Virginia, and in a year and a half of living in West Virginia, he became a congressman of West Virginia. Only, only three people, I think, in a hundred years have done something like that. Uh, because West Virginia, you know, had an opening, and, and he, he just knows how to campaign and knows, has very strong conservative feelings. And, Convictions. So now he's running for U.S. Senate. Right. Now is a big, big step. It's a huge, it's the biggest step of his life. Initially, Manchin was there. Okay. I give him credit. I think my son scared Manchin. <laughs> I think Manchin decided not to run anymore. This is his mama's point of view. So Manchin is no longer running for Senate in West Virginia. So there's an empty space. So it's going to run there, and that this is going to be a big, big challenge because he's running against the governor. The governor now is going to run against him in the Senate. And what's his name? Uh, Justice. Justice, Governor yes. Justice. Yeah. Now, what my son has done post, and what he's found out is that people know Justice, know his name, but they don't really like him. He has, uh, he doesn't pay his employees. He has all kinds of sues. They took away his helicopter. He's going to court for many things. And also the delegates. 
did not like him. They, one of the delegates, um, no, one of the senators, Tarr, said that, that Justice was the most self-centered, narcissistic person he's ever met. And they said that they just could not negotiate things. So he said he's going to increase taxes. And Senator Tarr and the Senate said, no, we're going to decrease taxes. So they went against him, they decreased the taxes, and now he takes credit for it. So my son thinks he can beat him, and uh, but it's, it's hard work. And he's already got a staff in D.C., right? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, what happened is very serious. He has 18 employees as a congressman, but those employees cannot do anything about campaigning. So he has to campaign and has to raise funds. You know, uh, yeah. and and the opponent is a millionaire. Billionaire is the richest man in West Virginia. Is he? Yeah. But my son knows how to how to raise money, and one of the things that Congress congressmen have to do, they spend about an average of five hours a day fundraising. Did you know that? Fundraising. Yeah. Five hours a day fundraising. Yeah, an average. There is a professor. At Catholic University, who wrote a book about it, Professor uh, Green, Matt Green, and this is something that uh, he does, and his people like him. But also, it's something that many other good, capable people don't run for office because they don't want to spend that much time raising funds. So that's something that needs modification. But at this moment, he needs the support. So what will your son do when he's elected and he's Oh, in then he'll be a senator. Then he'll be six years. Six years a senator. He's very conservative in many of the ideas. But Alex also is very good negotiating. So if he's there in the Senate, then what he does now, for example, he talks to the veterans. And then the veterans say, Congressman Mooney, we want this law changed this way. So he is very good about connecting people and modifying existing laws and listening to them. Uh, so, and also working behind scenes. Like he is very good, um, for example, when he was in Maryland, there was this senator who owned a garbage company. And he says, I'm a garbologist. <laughs> ah. uh, uh, I asked Alex Mooney, said, I know a lot of a garbage. I want <laughs> I want a garbage to pass through these streets. But I have to ask Alex Mooney how to vote many of the times. So he's very good behind scenes also as um, analyzing the laws and, and deciding yeah what what needs to be done. What do, you, what do you think your son would like to change? And I'm, I want to take a, talk a little bit about Lala. Yeah. Right? But what do, you, what do you think your son, Alex, wants to change the most about the country? Well, uh, he, um, he, he has put laws in, you know, all the time. One of them has to do with coins and money. Um, so another one with immigration. He's constantly putting laws with possible positive changes. He's very conservative, and he thinks that the power, for example, in the Board of Education and so forth, should come from the bottom up. 
should go for the parents. Oh, yeah. great. And he's really very, very much against communism, so he's very conservative. So, Lala, um, before we before we just briefly talk about the book here, um, on the podcast, so I told you yesterday I started the podcast on Winwood Radio. It's a small little, it used to be a small little radio, online radio the, the studio in, in Miami. Um, and one of the first guests I had on my show was a woman named Charlotte Eisenbett. And Charlotte Eisenbett was working under the Reagan administration, the Department of Education. She'd been appointed. And she was opposed to something called the Betterment of Education Through Science and Technology, program BEST, because she felt, just like Alex felt, that education and the way it was directed should be with the parents and yeah. then up. She was down to the grassroots on the ground level. So I'll send you a book. It's yeah. a PDF copy of what she wrote because she wrote a book called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. The really? Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. Oh, my Lord. She invited me up to uh, do a show in New Hampshire, I think is where she was living, uh, either Maine or New Hampshire. She passed away a couple years ago at 90-something. Uh, but I'll send you a copy of that book. You've now brought a copy of your book, Leaving Cuba, uh, One Family's Journey to Freedom. As we wind down, we take a few more moments here. Um, what do you want Americans to know about your journey? Uh, what we do know is this. What we do know is that Cuba... Uh, is the oldest country in the new world uh, outside of Mexico, right? I mean, the two of them are about the same age, basically. Uh, Cuba is was a very po- prosperous, very prosperous uh, country and people. Yeah, yeah. uh, much like kind of what we've enjoyed here in the U.S. Exactly. Um, you and your family found a way to continue that productivity in the United States. What do you want listeners to know about your book here? Well, the most important thing is to know that communism doesn't work. You know, um, you have people all over, you have Sanders saying that Che Guevara was good, and um, the thing is that communism takes away the power and puts it up in the government, and they, it doesn't work. It's very destructive. Um, so the beauty of, of America in general, you know, is that the power goes down. Now, when it comes to education, mm-hmm. I was a guidance counselor for 16 years. A guidance counselor? Yeah, in Fairfax, Virginia. And they're always attacking the parents. But the thing is, the schools don't communicate well with the parents. Uh, when I was a guidance counselor, they first hired me as a dropout prevention specialist. And I would do home visits. And I would um, stay and I go um, in the football game. I'll be out there. And if the parents were coming to me, I go behind the bleachers and I listen to them. It's called uh, incidental, you know, counseling. So I think, and I also brought outside counselors and training, like I had a a gang, so I I brought people who teach the children how to get out of gangs. Uh, So I think everybody's blaming the parents, blaming the parents. They need to work things with the parents. That's a really, really great uh, point here. And uh, Roger, you've got something? You're from Miami, right? Well, I was originally, yeah. Okay. So 
This is Pablo Israel Orta. Pedro, would you would you move over a little? Move over a little bit, a little bit. I'm gonna. He's got a book. He's from my. Because you're done, I'm going to do all three of them. Okay. Yeah. What do you want me to do now? You want me to get up and leave? Uh, you just move over. Move over. We're going to do three with Pod Pedro. All right. Because Pedro's wrote a book too, and he's from Cuba. All right. Oh, he's from Cuba. My family from Cuba was born in oh. Miami. My family, oh, okay. Your family's, yeah. My family also had struggles. Ian, Ian Trottier, nice to meet you. Yeah, mm. I, I'm really not from Miami. I, uh, I want an exception because I'm from D.C., but uh, my whole family is in Miami, and I travel to Miami all the time. If you would, can I, can I, I, just, I just want to put it over here so it's a little closer to him. Wow. You, you're the boss. Okay, what? this looks really intriguing, Roger. I know. So, I know, it's uh, gonna, I think this would be a fun interview. Farina, are you Pedro Spanish? Orta. No, Italian. I, I have traced some of my lineage to Portugal. Oh, okay. There you go. We're friends. So we now are joined, and the, and the camera here, just Pedro, the, the lens. Uh, uh, Lala and I, Lala, Lala, Lala was a prisoner in Cuba uh, in 1961. Uh, she was taken away. She was thrown in prison for a couple months. Her family was. Her uncle, uncle they killed her uncle. Uh, but uh, after moving to Maryland, uh, her uh, brother is a former Mi- is the former mayor of Miami, and her nephew is the current mayor of Miami, and her son is running for a U.S. Senate seat right now. Do you uh, know Francis Suarez? Yes. He's, in the, in the, he's my, cousin, my nephew. Nephew. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Nieto. Man. Nieto? Nephew. No, no, really, nephew. I said it wrong. Oh, you said it wrong. How do you say nephew? Uh, uh, no. Uh, so, sobrino. Sobrino, sobrino, sobrino. So, Pedro, uh, tell us, tell the listeners, viewers, a little about you. Who are you? My, my background is, my family is from Cuba. When Castro took over in 59, uh, I had family members that were anti-Castro activists. And uh, one of my grand-uncles on the father's side was actually thrown into prison for 20 years, political prisoner. Meanwhile, my grandfather, father's side, because he was anti-Castro, he actually was thrown in prison, but he was able to get out. But at that point in time, he had to flee the island or else he would face, you know, either being killed or or jail time. So he was able to get out of Cuba first and um, eventually my family immigrated but you know they burned down their businesses rather than turn the business over <laughs> and, and, and similarly you know I've got family members who had gave had to give up their farms so they killed their animals rather than to give the, the animals to the communist country uh, so I come from a strong rich heritage of uh, anti-Castro anti-communist family that paid a price they came to Miami with nothing and started from scratch zero and they had to do hard jobs. My father was 18, didn't speak one word of English. He had to stop his medical education, you know. Was a blue collar worker, a welder. He ended up being exposed to asbestos that 40 years later would claim his life. Uh, you know, family separation. He married my mother in Cuba, but they had reunited three years later, not seeing each other for almost three years. Uh, and the stories go on and on. My grandmother, I remember her crying just uncontrollably one day. And I asked her, what's going on? And she said, my mother died and I can't go to her funeral. Mind you, she hadn't seen her mother in more than a decade. So, you know, it's just horror stories what communism does and how hard it is for the immigrant community to start from zero. 
So there's a, uh, so I started my podcast, Pedro, just a little background on me. I started my podcast in 2016 on Windward Radio in Miami. And a contributing author to my book, he's written a chapter, is a guy named Servando Gonzalez. And I made the introduction to Lala uh, yesterday via an email. Uh, Servando is a historian. He was born in Havana. And I think in the 80s he may have gone, uh, come to the United States and he's been writing about, he's been writing about exactly what I think you may have been, you've written about in your book, and that the CIA used what happened in Cuba as a template to what they are doing now to the United States. Um, are you are you a whistleblower, Pedro? I am a CIA whistleblower, intelligence community whistleblower. And as you can imagine, after I blew the whistle, they terminated me. And that's a long story. So consequently, I've got a memoir that is a pretty robust. And You live in Miami still? I, I currently live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. After the CIA fired me, I relocated from the Washington, D.C. area to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. Um, would you agree... Would you agree... That, that what what happened in, in, in Castro's Cuba, would you agree that w- what happened in Castro's Cuba uh, can happen here in the United States? Would you would you say that the uh, that the that the, the the footsteps perhaps are developing uh, in this country? What we're seeing are tactics of tyrants, crushed dissent. I mean, it, it, I, that's one of the taglines I use with my story. Uh, you know, destroying dissent to preserve their power, uh, and that that's what. Reprisals against whistleblower is, if you want to call it to its fundamental, basically, core element. If you dare to speak truth to power, you're a dissenter. Uh, even though, by law, you're required to report wrongdoing, you're actually failing to follow the law if you don't report the wrongdoing. So you're following the law and reporting the wrongdoing. But then what happens is they use the full force and fury of the bureaucracy to beat you and bully you until you either quit or they find a way to fire you. And I walked the reader through that entire bureaucratic beating process. And because I refused to quit. I mean, I was forged in this kind of Cuban background that we don't bow down to tyranny. You're strong fighters. So I refused to bow down to tyranny and I basically just confronted their tyranny and I dared them basically not to follow the law. And instead of not following the law, they conspired to break the law. So ultimately, they cooked up some patched up plan that I call Salvatore's Christmas Massacre because they used mafia-like tactics to basically kick me out of the CIA and then put me through a kangaroo court to fire me. Lala, do you have any questions for Pedro? Do you have a question for Pedro? Well, you know, coincidentally, we have several um, people in West Virginia with similar stories. Um, And to me, it's incredible. To me, it's incredible that this country will hold that way. Yeah, did, yeah. yeah, tactics of tyrants, the same thing we witnessed with communist Cuba. What did you find, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, I'm going to ask a question here in a moment, but what did you find as an operative in the CIA, and by the way, are you familiar with them, were, are you familiar with John Kiriakou? Yes, I, I'm very, very familiar with him. John's uh, one of the early guests on my show on Winwood Radio. Uh, there's also another name I wanted to mention with the CIA, is a, a guy named Ray McGovern. Yes, very uh, familiar with him. Okay, um, those are two former guests on on on, on discussions of truth on, uh, from Windward Radio. But Pedro, what is it that you found? Uh, Peter Pry is another another CIA operative uh, that I've had on. Peter Pry, P R Y. 
what is it that you found as, as, as an operative? So you were working, you were employed by the CIA. What did you blow the whistle on? There were several stages, and first of all, it, 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 it was accidental whistleblowing. You literally are doing your job, you know, letting management know, hey, there's something going on here. And then all of a sudden, you, you kind of get blackballed. So the most important significant part was is after having years of experiences working in war zones, knowing what to do, what not to do, and being trained to go to a war zone as a manager, as a deputy chief of base, I go out to Afghanistan in 2014 as a deputy chief of base, and I'm working for a chief of base who, nice lady, got nothing wrong got against her, but she was way out of her element, similar to what happened in coast in Afghanistan in December 2009, where they had sent another lady to be a base chief who was way out of her element and made some decisions that cost her life and the life of six other officers. So fast forward 2009 to 2014-15, I'm working for this lady, she's turning the base into a social club on steroids, cooking, baking, whining, dining, we're Whoa. not really fighting a war, the military is asking us, please meet with us, we, we need to meet with you, and I, I can't meet with them because we're so busy doing social activities. She's having us make, run around this huge base, it's a military camp, that you know it takes a long time to get places, move around for food! Or yoga classes. Sure. Mind you, we got rockets, you know, that are impacting indirect fire attack. And one of those times, you know, 10 minutes after we drove somewhere, a rocket impacted. She's sabotaging the culture. So, I mean, she's creating a hostile work environment. And that, that right there is an EO liability if I, as a manager, see it and I don't report it. And the, the, the worst thing about this all is it was very easy to solve these problems. But the moment I reported it, it just led to a barrage of reprisals against me that sent me home, blackballed me at CIA. They wouldn't even give me a job. But, uh, you know, I basically had to take shelter in the Office of Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. And in this entire process, uh, you know, it's just I find just how the insanity of how broken the EEO process, uh, the IG, the grievance, the uh, personnel policies. It's like they literally just took the law and just slammed it against the law and it's like the law doesn't mean anything to us we'll do whatever we want to do that's why i call it a deep state run amok and i'm you know i'm just taking records documenting stuff i'm hoping for resolution all i wanted was a job yeah. so i can feed my family sole breadwinner for my family uh, and they didn't care so i go to the office of the inspector general for the intelligence community and now I'm working on a team that's doing an evaluation, inspecting whistleblower reprisal protections. So <laughs> I find out that we got just basically ink on paper, pretty paper, you know, worthless laws. They're not even enforcing it. I mean, they're basically daring you to report and they'll do nothing about it. You know, the IGs have no interest in investigating reprisals. It's just a sham. Uh, so because I was a whistleblower, despite the fact that there were three other whistleblowers in that office, they decided to send me back to CIA. I go back to CIA for round two with the devils. That's what I call it in the book. Uh, I called it the pit of hell, you know. Okay. Shakespeare's quote, hell is empty and all the devils are here. So, you know, at that point in time, it just, just snowballed. They hear, you know, I had to use the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act process to get to Congress. The IGs are basically flipping me off. It's like, we don't care, you know, we're not responding to you. I, I send it a second time, no responses. 
you know, eventually it, it just, like I said, snowballs. I get kicked out. They put me through the kangaroo. They fire me. The IG finally responds saying, go ahead, file an ICWPA, Conscious Community Whistleblower Protection Act procedure disclosure. I file it. You know, eventually when I file it, they basically tell me, sorry, you've been fired. You have no right to file it. So it's just insanity. But yet, when a whistleblower yeah. makes a disclosure against President Trump, the Ukraine whistleblower, uh, the first impeachment, is like all of a sudden the process works. This whistleblower is hailed as a hero. Right. Yeah. While myself and others like John Kirikou are heralded like villains in yesterday's trash. So the CIA and the comment was this, and I want to know if you really agree with this. But this guy, Servando Gonzalez, is an author, he's a historian and his author, and he said the CIA has basically used what happened in Cuba as a template to what is transpiring in the U.S. Do you see, do you see, and that's, that's quite an extensive book that you've written here, um, you've got some comments. I keep the book focused on what I witnessed firsthand from my whistleblower experiences with, yeah. with showing so that I don't dive into conspiratorial nonsense. Yeah. That's one. Second thing is I use sources, 150 citations, footnotes, to ensure that, again, it's well documented. But as far as these tactics, I mean, what we have going on now with the intelligence community is a lack of congressional oversight. The House Permanent Select Committee... Lack of congressional, very important. And the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence, they're, they're really not doing oversight. So it's almost like these agencies tell Congress what they want to tell them or not tell them or half-truths or lies, like spin it around. It's, you know, it's like they, they completely botched a you know, multi-billion dollar, multi-billion dollar program. And the response they gave to Congress was, we hired the wrong people. Uh, when in reality, it wasn't that they hired the wrong people. It's that the, the senior managers botched the program, so they take no accountability. They kind of just sugarcoat it in a way that Congress basically buys it. So Congress is not doing their oversight. So these agencies know that they can get away with, you know, whatever they want to get away with. I mean, you can go as far back as the torture report, the torture investigation, as Senator Feinstein who led that. And, you know, Brennan, you know, spying on congressional computers and so forth. Uh, you know, it's like they stonewall Congress. They don't tell Congress what Congress needs to know. Congress asks for documents. They don't give them the documents. If they give them documents, they give them like a teaser. So these are kind of similar tactics as far as you can label them covert influence campaigns. We're going to shape the narrative. We're going to let them know only what we want them to know. What do you think? Do you think there was a purpose of this uh, this woman in Afghanistan? There was was there, was there a reason why this person went in there and changed the base? Part of that is this DEI push: diversity, equity, and inclusion. They they they, they were putting women in charge at times that were questionable characters. Uh, I mean, I remember speaking to an IG officer one time that they were doing evaluations and every time they did an evaluation on the department, the most troubled department sometimes were the ones led by women. Now, I'm not trying to knock women down, but if you start promoting people because of their gender, 
uh-huh. rather yeah. than on their qualifications. Yeah. Because they do have a lot of qualified women. I work with plenty of them, and I praise some of them in my book. If you just promote people based on DEI, you're creating a woke culture, and you cannot expect excellence if you promote incompetence. Well said. Lala, leaving Cuba again, because I want to get some uh, some words in from you as well, and some commentary from you as well, and then Pedro will go back to you. But what is, what is the main message here? Again, folks... This is Lala's book, and it's available on Amazon? No, no, um, you, it's at uh, YouTube. If you go on YouTube, you see Lala Mooney, okay. uh, Living Cuba, and uh, it, it's through a nonprofit in, in Iowa, and they ask you for a contribution, or they can send it to you for free. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, the message is similar to his message, that communism takes all the power away and concentrates it and scaring people. Centralizes the power. Right. And scaring people and, and just keeping total control of the people and uh, not respecting any of their human, you know, um, rights. Um, but it's a little bit different because I think you're talking uh, about a system that's not working. And we're talking about it, but could work if there were changes and it needs to be refined. This is just a total wrong approach to running uh, a country, and it's just running it down to the to the bottom of it. And something that came to my mind, Pedro, is you're talking about a lack of congressional oversight on the CIA, and the CIA, of course, is uh, is that a creation after World War II, right? The precursor. 1947, the National Security Act, Truman set it in motion, created the CIA, but ironically. Two decades later, uh, Truman regretted he penned it in an op-ed that he formed the CIA. Did he? That and that it, it has failed to meet, you know, the the intent. Similarly, Dwight D. Eisenhower, as he was departing office, told the CIA director, "I I am left. We're left with a legacy of ashes from the CIA." He, he regretted also that the CIA had been formed. I didn't know that. And then Kennedy came in and said he wanted to splinter to a thousand pieces, and right. his brain got splattered into a thousand pieces. Right. Plus, Kennedy, what he did in Cuba, the failure of Aero Peak's invasion, yeah. was totally the fault of the CIA. That was the CIA. Yes, there are books out there now. Roger Stone has a book, and there's others out there who have... a little bit. Basically, strong circumstantial evidence of the fingerprints of LBJ, Lyndon Bain Johnson, the CIA, and a few others that basically took Kennedy out. The CIA, the early, the early I'm just throwing in some different pieces here that might be of curious, a curiosity. The CIA, the early office of the CIA was located in New York, is that correct? Do you know that? Actually, it, it was... The Washington, D.C. area. Okay. Uh, actually, inside Washington, D.C., eventually it became Langley in McLean, Virginia area. But its predecessor, precursor, uh, or its birth was the Office of Strategic Services, OSS. Now, the OSS. OSS, right, right. OSS. Wild Bill Donovan. And there, 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 there are lots of connections to New York with the CIA as far as its founders. And they've, they've, central, they've centralized the Central Intelligence Agency. They've centralized intelligence. The idea was to centralize the intelligence collection and processing 
processes so that instead of having disparate different forms of intelligence coming in and not being connected together that it would be connected together because I mean unfortunately 9-11 was a failure in that centralized intelligence process because we did have intelligence indicating that there was something going on but you know you had collection from NSA collection from FBI collection from CIA but apparently there was a Interagency rivalry is big within the intelligence community, so that's why post 9-11, the Intelligence Reform Act, the form that the Directorate of National Intelligence was supposed to try to fix this again, another time. But still, these interagency rivalries do continue. Okay. Do you have any more comments about Well, the in, the specific, in the specific case of the CIA, yes. Because the CIA, the plan to go to Cuba was originally planned by Eisenhower, who had experience in war situations. Then Eisenhower left, and Kennedy got selected. And then they changed a lot of these strategies. One of them is they changed the place where they were going to land in Cuba to another place was a disaster, the Bay of Pigs. And also all the other changes that Kennedy did destroyed the whole thing and caused it to fail. And there's more to it. The reality is it was the CIA driving Eisenhower to do this, and then in the case of Kennedy, it was the CIA trying to drive this operation in part to fail to create a war where the military would have to be called in. And that's where Kennedy said, wait a moment, I don't want to start a war with Russia. So if we go back to Eisenhower, you said something that sparked my interest. If we go back to Eisenhower, Eisenhower in his farewell address spoke about the military-industrial complex. And you're saying the CIA, theatrically almost, the theater they created, or they meant to create a war. Well, what we saw happen back then continues to stay. Take, for example, the Ukraine impeachment dilemma and the phone call. The National Security Council is extremely powerful, and it's embedded with a lot of career bureaucrats. Usually when the president needs some kind of foreign policy, whether security, defense, or you know, foreign as foreign relations, the National Security gets involved. So they game the system. It's like, okay, we're going to come up with three policy proposals. We know the president's going to reject A, B, so he'll take C. So they'll do some kind of crazy, funky proposals with A and B, A and B, and they'll propose C, which is what they want, and which the president, by default, is kind of fed into accepting that option C. Um, I want to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces. I think that was given at his press club in New York at the Astor. There's an Astor Hotel. I, I don't remember exactly sure it when Hall, it was said, but John F. Kennedy said that. Yeah, and then he was. And he was like assassinated. I said, like his brain was the thing that was splattered into a thousand pieces. Was Fidel Castro? Because I think Fidel Castro was educated partially in the U.S. Uh, I don't know exactly all his education, but I do know this: Fidel Castro came to the U.S. wanted to be an actor, and he failed, or they failed him, and he left bitter. So he went back to Cuba bitter at his failure to become an actor in the United States. And that played into his anti-American wow. attitudes. 
Okay, and what do you, what do you have here? What's this? Whose is this? Is this yours? This is this is. Is this yours, Lala? No, no, I don't know what this is. What is this information? I have no idea. Fraccionamiento Arcia Tavor Luis Abraham. Somebody. You don't know what these are? No, these must have been dropped here. Somebody wow, very here. interesting. Okay, yeah. I thought that was <laughs> that was yours, Pedro. That's okay. okay. All right. Um, fascinating uh, things, and and I want to I want to throw in something here. Um, you know, not not that it's you know, political. It shouldn't be political. You know, Americans have. There's a uh, there's a guy I like to listen to. He's a former guest on my show. And his name is David Ike, and he's uh, he was a former reporter for the BBC, I think, in sports, and then he began exposing corruption in in the UK. But he says there's, there's nothing more liberal. There's nothing more liberal than the U.S. Constitution. But what they've done is they spun, they've spun, they've they've weaponized some of these these words for us, right? So we're categorizing. The, uh, they're categorized using some of these words to categorize and, and, and create division. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, so uh, the point that I was the point the point that I was getting to is uh, is that we have uh, we have a dichotomy now politically in the U.S. of a left versus a right. Right? We simply have that, and it's uh, it's been created for over a hundred years. But in Miami, particularly uh, during the uh, during the Trump. Uh, 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 excuse me, during the lockdowns, right? So during the lockdowns, so this is during the Trump administration, there was a 100-mile, 100-mile-long caravan for Donald Trump. Because, let's just say, the left, they like to say, oh, Trump, Trump's all, you know, these are, these are all the, the white supremacist type, types of people, right? Uh, the, the racist, the white supremacist. Wait a second. Hold on. There's a 100-mile-long documented by Miami-Dade police, 100-mile-long Cuban, basically, right, Cubans and Venezuelans, uh, uh, parade for Donald Trump against the lockdowns in Miami. So what a, what, a, what a wonderful opportunity it is, not only to have this precious woman speak, who was locked up in the Cuban prison in 1961, and then able to move to the U.S. and, uh, and, 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 and prosper, uh, politically, uh, and certainly in business as well, and then you, uh, a product of parents that went through something similar in that, and and going into the CIA, going into the heart of American intelligence and saying, no, you're corrupt. No, you're not doing it right. Uh, yes, you need congressional oversight. <laughs> so bravo to both of you. Um, Pedro, some final comments uh, for, for viewers. What do you want them to take away this is available on amazon it's available on amazon paperback is probably your best option as well as ebook uh hardback is a little bit harder to get books a million appears to be supporting me with the uh, awesome. hardback yeah and it's also available apple books and barnes and noble nook i mean the takeaway is my epilogue who will speak for you when they come looking for you winston churchill has a quote and the quote states the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. There it's, you go. it's this lack of inaction, of just sit, quiet. sitting idly, being quiet, not doing anything, that it's empowering and emboldening the, the left to go unhinged and just trample the laws of the land. And, you know, leftist members of Congress who try to take us down a path of tyranny. 
So we, the people, need to rise up, use our powers as voters, elect responsible members into Congress, and uh, Congress needs to step its game up. They need to stop their political theater, their showmanship, and their grandstanding. You know, if they want to be just actors, go to Hollywood. Stay out of Washington. Um, I'm, I'm just being a share of thought, and I'm trying to remember. Uh, when I started the podcast, I had somebody local to Miami that had gotten my number and uh, was in the CIA and exposing a, uh, a story. Uh, I, I don't recall the, the person's name. Um, but... I commend both of you for doing what you do and putting your name and your face uh, and voice out there um, to really sound the alarm uh, because we're here, we're happening, we've seen, we've seen it more than... I think we've seen this socialist incursion uh, more under Joe Biden than we did under Obama. Uh, uh, go ahead. Liz Truss is right. I mean, it, it can take only a decade for us to completely just devolve into a communist-type tyrannical government with an economy is totally broken. Look at Venezuela. In 10 years, they went from oil prosperity to disparity and poverty to the point that people were eating dogs and cats and whatever they can get their hands on. Yeah. Uh, I traveled to Colombia, South America, okay. and they make crafts out of uh, Venezuelan, you know, the, the bills, Venezuelan pesos. Really? The, the actual craft that they make has more value than all that paper money in it. Their currency became totally really? worthless. Yeah, it's totally worthless. Yeah, and the UN is wanting us to eat insects, evidently. Did you hear that? No, I haven't. <laughs> the UN wants, wants men to stop eating meat and for everyone to start eating insects. <laughs> it sounds like we need to be a get out of the UN as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That's not good to be. You're laughing. You like that. I'm laughing. I mean, Chick the Chick-fil-A <laughs> Chick logo. Um, okay, so... We're going to wrap up here. About 20 seconds left. Lala. Uh, actually, we'll let the lady have the last the last, uh, last word. Pedro, some final comments for viewers and listeners. Read my story so that you can see what a wicked government will do to you if you dare to challenge it and why we must rise up as we the people to hold them accountable. Lala, please. This is a real-life story with real-life details of what is happening to you. Thank you so much. That was great. Yes. I mean, You're I enjoyed very that. very knowledgeable. Where did, you, where did you study? Where did you go to school? Well, I went to the University of Oregon. Okay. I studied sociology. Incredible. Just <laughs> time okay. And I know. It's like this. You can, you can sit here and for a certain amount of time experience. just call them out of the book. You know, but I figured, you know, you, I mean, yeah. this is just and incredible. I analyze people. The amount of stuff is fabulous. I'm trying to lead you to analyze it. It's really great. I mean, we'll do all these things on you all day long. But no, sometimes we don't. I'm going to send you the PDF. Uh, okay. from Charlotte yeah. Eisenhower. As far it's called as The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. I'm done. Oh unless God. you want more. It's about 900 pages. All right. Quite meticulously right. written. Uh, the other thing and I then I can send it to my, my brother, Savior. Yes, please. Yeah, because he's a very intellectual.